Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 40. After a quick detour last week to talk with Dr. Rosh, we're back at it this week with our regular routine. Before we get going, if you have any thoughts or feedback on last week's episode, or even have unanswered questions, make sure you send them our way at roshcast at roshreview.com. This week, we're going to cover a few PEDS respiratory questions to parallel the EM Clerkship podcast most recent episode, while also covering some bread and butter emergency medicine. Before we begin, let's get warmed up with a rapid review. What do you think about covering environmental emergencies, since these are things we see less frequently in our day-to-day practice, but always seem to appear on the in-training exam, which is right around the corner, as you know. That's a great idea. Describe the bite and complications of a pit viper snake. Pit viper bites cause local swelling and oozing from the wound. Severe envenomations can lead to DIC-like coagulopathy and hemorrhagic bullae. Next, how do brown recluse spider bites and black widow spider bites compare? Brown recluse spider bites cause a papule that later blisters and may necrose. Systemic symptoms include renal failure, pulmonary edema, and shock. In contrast, black widow spider bites cause a local papule with a halo. Severe systemic symptoms there include a peritonic abdomen, muscle fasciculations, and diaphoresis. Remember that you can identify a black widow spider by the red hourglass on their abdomen. All right, and the last one is particularly seasonal. What's the ideal temperature for a water bath which you would use to thaw a frostbitten foot? Ideally, frostbite should be treated with immersion in a warm water bath set at 37 to 39 degrees Celsius. Let's get into the new material with the pediatric respiratory question. A three-year-old girl presents to the ED with one hour of a barking cough and inspiratory strider at rest. On exam, she has mild retractions but is not hypoxic. Which of the following interventions has been shown to reduce hospital length of stay in moderate to severe croup? Is it A, dexamethasone, B, heliox, C, humidified air, or D, racemic epinephrine? Saw two kids just like this girl last week. The answer here should be choice A, dexamethasone. That's absolutely correct. Glucocorticoids are the mainstay of treatment for moderate to severe croup. Dexamethasone not only reduces the use of epinephrine, but it also reduces severity scores, hospital length of stay, and readmissions. It's also been shown to reduce the rate of intubation in some studies, all with a very minimal side effect profile. You just mentioned a quote severity score. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. We're talking about the Wesley Croup severity score here. This score incorporates five variables, level of consciousness, cyanosis, strider, air entry, and retractions. Scores are graded as mild, moderate, severe, or impending respiratory failure. You can use the score to guide management. Let's put the score up on the blog so people can spend a bit more time with it. Looking over it now, important management take-home points are first-line treatment is with dexamethasone and supportive care. As the severity increases, you add nebulized epinephrine. With repeated dosing, consider ICU admission and intubation. We haven't talked about croup in a while. Let's do a little rapid-fire review. Which virus is the most common cause of croup? Parainfluenza virus is the most common cause of croup. And what's the classic x-ray association in a kid with croup? Steeple sign is the classic x-ray finding seen in children with croup. And describe the classic croup presentation. Children with croup often present with a barky, seal-like cough, inspiratory strider, and a low-grade fever. They're often non-toxic appearing and are between 6 months and 3 years of age. With respect to the other answer choices, choices B and C, heliox, and humidified air, neither of those have been shown to have any benefit in the treatment of croup. Choice D, racemic epinephrine, that does work by causing local vasoconstriction and reducing hyperemia and edema. However, the effects are transient, unlike dexamethasone, which is long-acting. Dexamethasone for croup. Got it. All right, you're up, and we're doing a complete 180 from the last question. We're headed to fast track. 
A 33-year-old woman presents with intermittent, intense shooting pain to the left side of her face. She states that the pain begins near her ear and radiates to her chin. The pain is often brought on by chewing and brushing her teeth. Which of the following is most likely indicated? Is it A, carbamazepine, B, dental x-rays, C, mandibular CT scan, or D, prednisone? This patient is describing the sudden paroxysms of the lancinating pain seen in trigeminal neuralgia. This is treated with choice A, carbamazepine. Perfect logic and correct answer. Trigeminal neuralgia manifests with unilateral facial pain triggered by chewing, brushing teeth, or even touching the affected area of the face. This pain syndrome can affect one or more of the trigeminal nerve distributions. Right, but even though all distributions may be affected, the maxillary and mandibular, those are the V2 and V3 distributions, are most commonly affected. Hot and cold temperature exposure can also provoke these symptoms. And don't forget that this is purely a clinical diagnosis. As you mentioned, first-line therapy is with carbamazepine. In refractory cases, surgical management may be needed. No need to scare your patients with that, though. There's a high rate of spontaneous remission. Do you know which side is more frequently affected by trigeminal neuralgia? For some reason, the right side is more commonly affected than the left. That's right. And if you were to start carbamazepine, which blood test must be ordered to monitor for side effects? Before starting carbamazepine, you should check a complete blood count and liver function tests, as both the hematologic and hepatic systems can be affected. All right, we're moving from fast track to the trauma bay. Which of the following cervical spine fractures is considered stable? Is it A, a bilateral facet dislocation, B, a flexion teardrop fracture, C, Jefferson fracture, or D, a type 1 odontoid fracture? Tough question. I'm going to have to go through this answer by answer. Choice A, a bilateral facet dislocation, that's bilateral, so that sounds unstable. Choice B, a flexion teardrop fracture, that results from a fracture of the anterior inferior portion of the vertebral body, which also disrupts the anterior and posterior ligamentous structures. That's also an unstable injury. Choice C, a Jefferson fracture, that's a burst fracture, which is also unstable. Despite not being sure of what the different types of odontoid fractures are, I'm going to go with choice D, a type 1 odontoid fracture. Great process of elimination, and you're correct. A type 1 odontoid fracture is considered a stable fracture. There are three types of odontoid fractures. Type 1 is an avulsion of the tip of the odontoid. Such fractures occur above the level of the transverse ligaments, so they're considered stable. They typically result from anterior-posterior force being applied to the head. A type 2 odontoid fracture, which is the most common, is a fracture at the base of the dens. These are definitely unstable. Type 3 odontoid fractures are fractures at the junction of the odontoid and the body of C2, also unstable. We'll throw an odontoid fracture teaching image up on the blog, so definitely check that out. For now, let's head back over to the PZD and see what's happening there. A handful of patients just arrived, so you're getting two questions at once. You evaluate and treat four children with moderate croup by administering oral dexamethasone and aerosolized epinephrine. You reevaluate each child two hours after the initial RAC epi treatment. Which of the following children can most safely be discharged home? Is it A, a one-year-old boy with persistent strider at rest? B, a two-year-old uninsured boy with clinical improvement but no primary care physician? C, a three-month-old girl with a history of tracheomalacia who has clinical improvement? Or D, a four-year-old girl with retractions that have since resolved? It's definitely croup season, so I guess it's appropriate that we cover two croup questions in one episode. The answer here would be choice D, a four-year-old girl with retractions that have since resolved. That's right. Going back to the croup severity score we discussed in question one, this young girl with retractions that have resolved now has mild croup, which can most often be safely discharged. Right, and those with severe comorbid conditions, age less than six months, or severe symptoms definitely can't go home. 
This excludes choice A, the one-year-old with persistent strider, and choice C, the three-month-old with tracheomalacia. Choice B, the two-year-old who improved, that child could go home. However, without safe access to primary care, this isn't a great discharge plan. Exactly. That was a quick question, and we have back-to-back patients. So you're up again, and unfortunately, this little guy was mistriaged. He definitely should have been seen first. A 10-year-old boy presents with increased lethargy and vomiting. Mom states that the patient has had three days of cough, rhinorrhea, sore throat, and fever. The nanny has been giving the patient an appropriate dose of an over-the-counter cold medicine. Physical exam is remarkable for lethargy, mild icterus, and hepatomegaly. Lab results are remarkable for a markedly elevated AST and ALT. Which medication is most likely responsible for this patient's presentation? Is it A, acetaminophen, B, aspirin, C, guaifenesin, or D, ibuprofen? Long question, so let me summarize. This is a 10-month-old boy with a recent cold taking the appropriate amount of some over-the-counter cold medicine who is now in liver failure. That's correct. So my reflexive answer here would be choice A, taking over-the-counter medications and liver failure must be acetaminophen. However, given that the baby has been getting the correct amount, this becomes less likely. The other possibility is that the child has Ray syndrome secondary to aspirin usage, which is also over-the-counter. I'll go with choice B, aspirin. Really tough question that you put together perfectly. Ray syndrome is an uncommon, rapidly progressive, non-inflammatory encephalopathy associated with altered mental status, cerebral edema, and hepatic dysfunction. Patients typically present with respiratory or a GI prodrome, followed by encephalopathic picture. Young children may present with behavioral changes and deteriorating levels of consciousness. And do we have any sense of the mechanism? The mechanism hasn't been fully elucidated. All we know is that it's due to salicylate ingestion during a viral illness. It's often seen with chickenpox or influenza. It's unclear to me whether there's something specific about those viruses, or those are just two very common viruses for kids to get, so that's when we happen to see it. Are there any other risk factors? Yeah, there are actually three other risk factors, and all are inborn errors of metabolism. Those with urea cycle disorders, fatty acid oxidation disorders, and those with medium-chain acyl coenzyme A dehydrogenase deficiency are all at increased risk. As a related question, can you name three common over-the-counter medications that contain salicylates? We've been talking about aspirin, so that's definitely one. The classic salicylate toxicity question would be about oil of wintergreen or methyl salicylate, so that's two. The third one I'm not too sure about. Aspirin and oil of wintergreen are definitely correct, as well as Pepto-Bismol. They all contain salicylates. Oh right, I forgot that Pepto-Bismol had it too. Let's move on to another random question. A 52-year-old man with a history of renal failure status post-transplant presents with shortness of breath. He's had a non-productive cough with fevers for the last three days. His only medication is mycophenolate. With ambulation, he desaturates to 85% on room air, and his resting saturation is 90%. On exam, he has diffuse bilateral crackles and his x-ray shows bilateral perihilar infiltrates. Which of the following is the most appropriate drug to administer next? Is it A, anaerobic antibiotic coverage, B, a beta agonist, C, a loop diuretic, or D, an oral corticosteroid? Post-transplant, immunocompromised, hypoxic with bilateral perihilar infiltrates, that has to be PCP pneumonia. That's right, and how do you treat that? PCP pneumonia is ideally treated with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. However, that's not an answer choice here. Some patients, including this patient, also qualify for treatments with steroids. So I'll go with choice D, oral corticosteroids. So this guy definitely has PCP pneumonia. His x-ray, which is up on the blog, shows the classic batwing appearance of the perihilar infiltrates. He likely also has an elevated LDH, although that information wasn't offered in this question. PCP commonly affects those with AIDS with a CD4 count less than 200, 
but it can also occur in those that are immunocompromised or have an autoimmune disorder. Typical symptoms include increasing fatigue, nonproductive cough, dyspnea on exertion, pleuritic chest pain, and a fever. And as you just mentioned, there is a subset of patients, like this gentleman, who would benefit from steroids in addition to trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Patients with a PaO2 less than 70 on room air and those with an AA gradient greater than 35 should receive prednisone as this actually improves mortality. A PaO2 less than 70 roughly corresponds to a saturation of about 93%. So this guy's resting sat of 90 and ambulatory sat of 85 definitely means he would benefit from some steroids. The reason steroids improve mortality is also worth knowing. As the PCP fungal cells die, there is an incredible inflammatory response in the lungs. This response can worsen patient outcomes, so steroids blunt this. Before you get the last question up, do you recall the treatment for PCP in those that are sulfa-allergic? That would be primaquine clindamycin or otovaquone for mild to moderate disease or pentamidine for severe disease. Perfect. I'll run through the other incorrect answers as well. Anaerobic antibiotic coverage, choice A, is not routinely used for the treatment of pneumonia. It's often given in those with suspicion for aspiration. Beta agonists, choice B, that's used for COPD and asthma, unlikely to benefit our patient here who doesn't have any evidence of bronchospasm on exam. Choice C, a loop diuretic, that's used to treat congestive heart failure. This patient's picture is more consistent with an infectious process rather than a CHF exacerbation, so loop diuretics aren't indicated. That's right, you're up for the next one. A six-month-old girl born at 35 weeks gestation and previously well presents to the ED with a low-grade fever, rhinorrhea, cough, wheezing, and increased work of breathing for the past three days. Vital signs show a temperature of 38.3 Celsius, a heart rate of 150, a respiratory rate of 72, and an oxygen saturation of 90% on room air. She's wheezing, using accessory muscles, and having subcostal retractions. An albuterol nebulizer treatment was given, but no improvement was seen. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? Is it A, administer one milligram per kilogram of oral dexamethasone, B, administer another albuterol nebulizer treatment because the patient continues to be wheezing, C, administer high-dose inhaled corticosteroids, or D, admit to the hospital and provide supportive care? Man, another long question stem. This sounds like a case of severe acute bronchiolitis, which should be treated with choice D, admit to the hospital and provide supportive care. That's right. Bronchiolitis is a clinical diagnosis defined by rhinitis, tachypnea, wheezing, cough, and crackles, often requiring the use of accessory muscles and nasal flaring. This patient additionally had a known risk factor, prematurity, and was the right age, as bronchiolitis often affects those between two months and two years old. And as you got at with the answer, the treatment is supportive care, including supplemental oxygen if hypoxic. Those that can't take PO will either need nebulized hypertonic saline or IV fluids to prevent dehydration. Most of the common etiologies are viral, so there's no role for antibiotics. RSV is the most common etiology, but bronchiolitis can also be caused by rhinovirus, parainfluenza virus, human metanumovirus, as well as influenza. But what about the beta agonists and steroids? In the vignette, the patient received a beta agonist, and choice A offers a one-time steroid dose. Is there a role for either of these? Intuitively, there should be, since the kid's wheezing, right? Great question. A landmark study by the PCARN group showed that oral steroids did not improve outcomes in first-time wheezers with bronchiolitis. Additionally, the American Academy of Pediatric recommends that, quote, clinicians should not administer bronchodilators to infants and children with a diagnosis of bronchiolitis. So beta agonists are out as well. Good to know. Let's close this episode out with a rapid review. Dexamethasone is the first-line treatment for croup. In moderate to severe cases, it reduces hospital length of stay. 
The Wesley Croup Severity Score incorporates level of consciousness, cyanosis, strider, air entry, and retractions to help guide management, ranging from supportive care to nebulized epinephrine to ICU admission and even intubation. In children with croup, chest x-ray may show the classic steeple sign. Trigeminal neuralgia presents with paroxysms of lancinating pain, typically in the V2 and V3 dermatomes. Treatment is with carbamazepine. Bilateral facet dislocations, flexion teardrop fractures, Jefferson fractures, and type 2 and type 3 odontoid fractures are all unstable cervical spine fractures. A flexion teardrop fracture is a fracture of the anterior inferior portion of the vertebral body, which disrupts the anterior and posterior ligamentous structures. A Jefferson fracture is a burst fracture. A type 1 odontoid fracture is an avulsion of the tip of the odontoid. A type 2 odontoid fracture, which is the most common, is a fracture at the base of the dens. A type 3 odontoid fracture is a fracture at the junction of the odontoid and the body of C2. Ray syndrome presents with a rapidly progressive non-inflammatory encephalopathy associated with altered mental status, cerebral edema, and hepatic dysfunction. Patients typically present with respiratory or a GI prodrome, followed by an encephalopathic picture. Ray syndrome is caused by salicylate usage in the setting of a viral illness. Influenza and chickenpox are commonly implicated viruses. PCP or PJP pneumonia presents with bilateral perihilar infiltrates in a classic batwing appearance. Immunocompromised patients are at risk. PCP or PJP is ideally treated with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. In sulfoallergic patients, consider primaquin, clindamycin, or atorvaquone for mild to moderate disease or pentamidine for severe disease. Bronchiolitis should be treated with supportive care. In first-time wheezers, evidence suggests that there is no role for oral steroids or beta agonists. So that wraps up Roshcast episode 40. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related teaching images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are also tons of other great free resources there to help you prepare for the boards and for the wards. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and at Rosh Review. You can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. And you can also help us pick questions by identifying ones that you would like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality reviews.